0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, April 25th, 2021. Spring's still coming.
1: Yeah, it's coming. uh, The weather's improving. We're on the way. I'm confident. So the big, what? A little shout out to Zeke. Right. That's what I was going to do. I was going to give you a shout out to Zeke. Okay. Because birthday. it's his birthday on may 1st may right. day yeah happy birthday zeke zebot the z-man zeke child west coast zeke
0: <laughs> with any luck at all pepper will have
1: her first taste of birthday cake as she's working up to it yeah. uh i'll be curious to see how they handle that she might like that more than green beans she might but you know she's uh if she knows what's good for her yeah well pepper uh, i think she knows more than she's saying at least i'm hopeful that that's the case. So tonight is the Academy Awards, and the headline here is no big deal. That's what everybody says. Yeah, I agree totally. Yeah, no big deal. But what was curious to me, or surprising to me, I'm sure, is what I meant. Was Maureen Dowd wrote an article called "Crushed Dream Factory," in which she actually decries uh, what's going on with uh, Hollywood and the Oscars? I didn't think anybody was overly concerned about it. But what she says is, she quotes uh, Bill Maher actually, who says, uh, You know, look, Academy nominations used to say, Look what great movies we make. Now they say, Look what good people we are. It's not about entertainment. You know, there's something too that, I suppose. She also quotes the editor of a magazine called, a journal called Liberties, who agrees that Hollywood has traded this, a quote, playfulness and complexity and surprise and depth for virtue. Uh, and the result is, the show is less interesting, I suppose, but also it's less interesting because the movies are less interesting. Now, that's too big a subject to take on, and I haven't seen all the nominated movies, uh, so I'm not... So you uh, have I'm, no I'm,
0: idea whether no, they're interesting say, or no, not. No, no, no,
1: no. No idea. I didn't say no idea. But uh, I'm not going to get into that uh, too deeply because we have too many things to cover. But, but I will say this. Uh, out of nowhere, by accident, you put on Eternal Classic movies yesterday... Uh, in the course of a film called The Secret of Santa Vittoria, which is a movie that was released in 1969. And, you know, it's a World War II movie uh, that takes place in a town uh, in Italy that has been overrun by the Nazis. And they have a secret where, namely, they're hiding their wine from the Nazis. Uh, And it's got an interesting cast. It's got Anthony Quinn and Anna Magnani. But what's interesting about it, it's a very conventional uh, Hollywood movie in the sense that it's it's kind of a straight narrative uh, there's a fair bit at stake. It is after all World War II and you have the Nazis on the one hand and the Italians on the other. But what was fascinating to me, at least, was that Granger and Nico, our, our younger folks here, were drawn into this movie in minutes. They, they were captivated. Is that fair? We could not turn it off. Really? And it was just, you know, wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards. Uh, it won a Golden Globe, I think. But uh, it's not considered one of the great films of all time. But again, it was a conventional Hollywood narrative, but perhaps in you know, a little bit of departure, uh, with grand themes, with real people, with real things at stake. And, uh, you know, uh, if Granger Nico can be viewed as proxy for the younger generation, at least for the purpose of this discussion, it got me thinking, at least, maybe people are missing that kind of thing. Maybe they are. Yeah.
0: It, it was a good film, and real, it was real. Uh, for all its, uh, you know, typical, you know, plot line, right, you know, uh, et cetera, um, the uh, at a certain point, the whole town is has got a f- kind of a fire brigade thing going. They're trying to hide a million bottles of wine, the right. whole production of right. the town, uh, because the Nazis. They've heard the Nazis. I guess are um, determined to confiscate. And that's their whole. That's it. That's their whole livelihood, and uh, so everybody's lined up, and the um, the film spends a fair amount of time on individual faces now these are all these are mostly elderly people the people who have not gone to war right right? and uh and they're just like they're dressed not in hollywood garb or hollywood's version of uh you know italian peasant garb i mean they seem to be dressed very naturally and their faces are natural and crusty and wrinkled and uh lavish attention is spent
1: on sort of The realism of this. uh... Well, it's quite real, but it's also, um, uh, it's a story. I mean, at the end of the day, and this is a lot of, uh, and it's a true story, but it's... uh, It's based on a true story. It's based on a true story, but I mean, that's what makes it compelling. And that perhaps in in a way that differentiates it from some of the films we see today. Again, I don't know. I'm not here to attack films. I thought No Man's Land was fine, maybe even good. But uh, we,
0: we saw, we have seen
1: a bunch of interesting films.
0: Yeah. The, don't forget 40-year-old version.
1: Yeah, that was very good. Also realism. But not nominated.
0: Not nominated. No. I'm, I'm just talking about the films we've seen. Yeah. We, uh, but, uh,
1: but, but my point is, we can't get too deeply into this, but uh, it just feels something's missing. Uh, and maybe there was something that these conventional Hollywood films had to offer after all. I don't know. That's all. Okay. All right. So you had uh, uh, The Bookseller of Florence? Yes. This is a review of a
0: book. Uh, The review's in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the book is called The Bookseller of Florence. It's by Ross King. Now, Ross King has written some uh, terrific historical books. Uh, uh, Brunelleschi's Dome comes to mind. Uh, Michelangelo and the Pope's ceiling Great story of, of course, the Sistine Chapel Mm -hmm. uh, painting. And uh, so this is a great guy to take on this person being Vespasiano da Bisticci. Born in 1422. Mm -hmm. Okay, he starts out in uh, kind of uh, book uh, binding. All right. And ends up uh, running a bookshop, you know, selling books. Well, to sell books in fourteen, in the fourteen thirties, forties, or whatever, uh, you need to make the books. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is just the key thing here is he's right at the transition period of going from manuscripts, that is to say, handwritten. You remember that old phrase, illuminated manuscripts, mm-hmm. it conjures up monks writing out uh, these books, which are either transcripts of ancient books or religious books or whatever. Um, by now, it's passed into the hands of lay people, okay? mm-hmm. but they're still being handwritten except for when uh, we get to movable type. Well, by the time uh, movable type makes its way down to uh, south of the Alps, as this article notes, uh, Vespasiano is uh, in his 30s, you know, still early enough to, you know, um, flow with the changes, right? Mm -hmm. But for some reason, he sticks with manuscripts. Okay? Laborious, old-fashioned. So, actually, he's kind of going out of business. Mm-hmm. His business is waning because there's a huge thirst for books. I know, you're thinking, 15th century, the Renaissance, the rediscovery of all the great uh, ancient authors and literature and stuff. Okay? This, this fuels that uh, renaissance of knowledge. Uh, so, it's a key thing, but... Uh, these new books uh, from the printing press uh, are uh, so much faster and cheaper and easier to get. Uh, so, you know, damages his business. Who comes in to save the day? My man.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh. My guy. Yeah. Federico da Montefeltre. All right. Feltro. And he uh, saves the business how? Um I can't say Ross King says he says he saves the business, but the way I read this is he does save the business. You know, he's the Duke of Urbino. He's my all-time favorite condottiere. Yeah. In other words, mercenary soldier. You know, has his first big victory when he's fifteen. How does he save the business? Because he orders a library. Mm-hmm. He he wants a huge number of books, and he wants them
1: old school. Okay. All right. oh, so, that gives us so this is a big order yeah. this is a
0: big order now you know the, the article here uh, seems to imply that uh, not only was Montefeltro a great uh, mercenary soldier but uh, he was uh, you know um, quite the intellectual I'm not so sure that was true mm-hmm. the thing is it was cool to own books it was cool, cool to be cultured at this think Medici mm-hmm. okay so to run with the big dogs you want to outfit your house like the big dogs, which would include a fine library. Um, and, and he did hire people to read to him. He had, so he was interested in uh, taking on these things. Anyway, sounds like an interesting book. Sounds right up my alley. We do admire librarians, don't we? Sure. And in a way, he's sort of a librarian. Um, and uh, well, you know. Uh, We've got a lot to cover, so I won't uh, go crazy here. Ross King, the bookseller of Florence.
1: Okay. And that took place in the 1500s?
0: No, 15th century. 15th century. 1400s. 1400s. All right. That's what
1: I wanted to clarify.
0: He and uh, Federico, Vespasiano and Federico, both born in
1: 1422. Okay. Nailed that down. All right. So, uh, as it happens... uh, this week, and maybe even one day in particular, uh, in the middle, of the uh, beginning of the week, um, the Times published what I call the sex issue. Now, why am I calling it the sex issue?
0: You know, for a minute there, I thought it was—I thought you meant like gender issue, like it was dealing with. Uh, ah, yes and you know, no, but you see that—that that would have been more likely, right? But
1: it really is the sex issue. Yeah, yeah. So this tells me—I I tell you why this is notable. Not that I'm interested in sex. The reason it's notable. Is that... Uh, you hear that, That's here, how guys. you know we're emerging from COVID. That's what's going to happen. When we really get COVID behind us, people are going to like lighten up and get into things like uh, sex. Uh, which I usually... thought
0: it was sort of the opposite. Isn't sex the only thing you can really do? No, no.
1: You yeah, haven't been paying attention. Okay. So uh, popular culture is going to get into that. And the Times sort of signaled the end of COVID with an article called, um, believe it or not, flashing back to the back. The back being the nickname... Of a young woman named Vicki Dugan, a young woman in 1957 who became famous for wearing backless dresses. Very low cut. Very low cut. Backless dresses. Backless dresses. dresses. And I never heard of Vicki Dugan. And there are, they tell a story about how she was at some award show giving some award and she took off her wrap or something like that and revealed her back in a dramatic way. And then we were off to the races. And it's a, what's interesting to me, is it's a very long article with a lot of interesting photographs. Again, in your New York Times, uh, citing Miss Dugan as the inspiration for the Jessica Rabbit character and Who Framed uh, Roger Rabbit? To give you an idea,
0: it does. Look, she does look exactly like that. Yeah,
1: she has that look, and uh, they do make a persuasive case that she would have made a substantial impression in 1957. Uh, her story goes nowhere. She never really caught on as an actress and she obviously didn't become terribly well-known. So why is the Times writing about it? Because in the middle of it, there's a paragraph that says that her photograph is beginning to appear more often in social media because there are some Instagram sites about old Hollywood. That's it. So I guess the Times just enjoyed writing about it, about her and showing her. Uh, Miss Dugan has written a memoir, which called uh, Backless in Hollywood and Other Tales that she hopes to publish, but she's looking for an agent. So that was sort of a tip-off that something was going on. Then we have the obituary of Joy Hummel, first female writer of Wonder Woman comics. Now, that may fit more in the category you mentioned a moment ago, a sort of feminist perspective, a gender studies perspective. Uh, Although we are lavish with a lot of, uh, you know, drawings of Wonder Woman, uh, and we are told, in fact, that there was some controversy about the length of her shorts that uh, Ms. Hummel had to really deal with. I guess was raised by church groups as much as anything else. Although her story is kind of interesting. Uh, She was hired as quasi-secretary by the man who originated Wonder Woman, a a psychologist named William Moulton Marston. And uh, sadly, he succumbed to polio a few years after he hired uh, Ms. Hummel. And uh, he gave her most of the writing duties. Although she wasn't credited, people eventually determined years and years later that she wrote many, many Wonder Woman stories, maybe 70. So much so that she was honored at the latest Comic-Con, uh, which is the gathering in which people dress up in costumes and the like to celebrate the comics. And after she had spoken, by now an elderly woman who was very impressed by everybody paying all this attention and, and really being that Wonder Woman, the uh, interviewer asked everybody in the audience, who was wearing a Wonder Woman outfit to stand. And apparently there were enough people who fit that category to make an important impression. So um, there's that. And then finally, and this, of course, is the clincher, is a substantial obituary in the Times um, of a woman named Tempest Storm. Uh, Not her uh, uh, given name. Uh, Let's call it her showbiz name. It's called, and the is called Tempest Storm Stripper with Enduring Vava Voom. And apparently Tempest Storm uh, was a famous uh, stripper uh, in the uh, 50s and beyond. Apparently she worked uh, into, uh, for many men, for decades, honestly. Uh, and uh, there are articles about her, headlines like Tempest in a D-cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, uh... There are all kinds of coy interviews that she gave about her possible affairs with important persons. She describes John F. Kennedy as a great man in everything he did. Elvis Presley, she said, really was the king, etc., etc. She also um, had strong views about stripping. As she put it, she says, I think taking off all your clothes, uh, which she says she never did, is not only immoral but boring. There has to be something left to the imagination If you take everything off, you please a few morons and chase all the nice people away. So, you know.
0: I would call her a
1: burlesque performer. Yes. Yes. What what did I call her?
0: I don't know. But I I think the word burlesque is uh, coming back into vogue.
1: Really? Well, there was an
0: article about burlesque performers a few uh, weeks ago in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. and uh also <laughs> we've heard rumors that a local restaurant is going to start oh. having burlesque nights. yeah well, that, so, well i'll believe um, it when i
1: see it so to speak or believe it right, when i hear uh, more about uh, it
0: we'll see it may it may have its day uh once it's a again little hard to imagine isn't right? it and i should just mention that the you know the wonder woman guy yeah marston yeah interesting complex guy
1: really yeah so
0: I you know he, he had an interesting living situation. I, I do oh yeah I remember yes. that vaguely yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. um so uh, you know it's it's worth a Google
1: yeah all right well I'll do that
0: but uh, really we're celebrating uh, Joy Hummel who took over for him yes yeah okay on the opposite end of the spectrum yeah uh, an article interesting to me kind of a photo essay yeah. actually in the Wall Street Journal right um the uh, entitled the four thousand nine hundred and seventy-eight schools that changed America, and this is just uh, to me a great, great uh, revelation. knew nothing about this, knew nothing about uh, the people involved, and it's it's a kind of a, a heartwarming story about um, a man. Uh, Rosenwald, uh, now I've forgotten his uh, first name. Anyway, um, Julius Rosenwald, yeah. who teamed up with Booker T. Washington and uh, together were responsible for um, basically uh, building
1: thousands of schools thousands of schools right, in, in the 15 town. different states. Right, in the so
0: the way this um, article articles written by Andrew Filer or feeler, not sure which. F E I L E R, who's written a book about this because he's from Georgia and he suddenly, uh, you know, um, had and had never heard of this person or the whole phenomenon and uh, found out about it and went, uh, you know, uh, on a um, journey photographing mm-hmm. these schools and finding all about this. Anyway, there's this great picture of brothers Frank and Charles Brinkley sitting in the. Cairo school um, in Sumner County Tennessee okay so they attended um, the Brinkley's uh, bear witness to the multi-generational impact of this program and I'll explain the program in a minute the brothers attended the one teacher school in the 19 in the 19, late 40s and 50s went on to college and graduate school and um, and both became educators. They have four sisters who also went to um, college. And the siblings' ten children all went to college. And what's interesting about this, they are African American. They come from uh, part of the country uh, during a time when black schools were tremendously Underfunded mm-hmm. uh, compared to white schools, segregation still existed. Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, there, you know, there was a case to be made that uh, education was barely happening in the facilities of um, uh, that uh, black children were relegated to. Along comes Julius, Julius Rosenwald. Now he was a um, uh, head of Sears and Roebuck. Mm-hmm among other things. And uh, he um, gets introduced to Booker T. Washington, famous educator, orator, head of the Tuskegee Institute. He gets involved with the Tuskegee Institute, and that kind of uh, develops into actually um, Rosenwald uh, creating a foundation that will give money to... um, Different communities to Im- build uh, and maintain schools in black, you know, underprivileged mm-hmm. right. communities. But here's the interesting thing: they he required the foundation required matching funds from the communities, mm-hmm. so they had a vested interest. As I said, it involved fifteen different states, all the states, all you know, all the southern states and uh, well, a variety of yeah. others. So
1: there's 5,000 schools. They do make the point, you're talking about graduates, that uh, Maya Angelou went to one of these schools, Medgar Evers went to one of these schools. John Lewis. John Lewis, right? John Lewis the said, I was
0: curious, I was hungry to learn, I was absolutely committed to giving my all in the classroom. This is the kind of effect that some well, of these schools Well, you know, it, it's funny,
1: because I think whenever you think about philanthropy, uh, think about foundations starting... Uh, commencing efforts, particularly those in education, because it's so challenging, you really wonder how effective they're going to be. And you think goes- of Zuckerberg, yeah, in about 10 mm-hmm. years ago, he gives 100
0: million bucks to Newark, and it doesn't work, Newark. out. It just goes and nowhere. Uh, everybody says it was, you know, uh, waste. largely wasted, yeah. But this is the thing, and this is happening in like uh, in the you know, early uh 1917 is when they start this program right. 1917 but i think that that matching funds having the communities directly involved yeah. in uh these uh buildings was key to it and they didn't just do um schools uh there were schools but there were also housing for teachers right. and uh you know different kinds of uh uh you know related uh buildings um they had these schools, as far as I can tell, had effects on school attendance. You know, they're better places to be, people are going to show up, literacy scores, um, years that kids stayed in school. All right. It also um, seemed to, um, there's an effect of uh, an improvement in life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, um associated hmm. with the areas that had these schools and they say it encouraged actual um the northern miga- migration well which not. is an interesting thought okay
1: um yeah I thought I read it it was a, you know, was a, it was an interesting one which I
0: assume means you know it was uh Giving uh, people aspirations, yeah, and well, it uh, certainly
1: made you uh, more marketable, gave you more flexibility, gave you more confidence, and able to move around the country and and to learn new skills and apply skills. And they said he the the foundation
0: uh, donated about seventy million dollars, mm-hmm. which in today's money is something mm-hmm. like seven hundred right. million dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, who's ever heard of him, Julius? Rosenwald. And, uh, you know, there's pictures of these, these you know, old schools that still exist. You know, many of them still have like a photograph of him hanging on the wall. And you say, who the heck is that old white guy oh. in this picture? But interesting, interesting story. Kind of warms your heart. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, Jim Steinman passed away this week. Uh, Jim Steinman uh, was the writer of... Uh, some a lot of songs, but perhaps most famously the uh, "Bad Out of Hell" album that he put out with Meatloaf in the 1970s. Um, now, "Bad Out of Hell" is an album that you and I have listened to uh, many times. Perhaps I'm more. Than I you. love it. It is I a fantastic album. And uh, 1977. Yeah, that sounds about right.
0: That obituary says that it was one of the biggest selling albums of all time.
1: I did not understand that. I did not know that. I thought it was a little bit of a niche album, and I know that none of the major labels would put it out at the time, so they were kind of with a new label, but it turns out, according to the Times, Bad Out of Hell routinely lands near the top of any list of top-selling albums, along with albums like Michael Jackson's Thriller and The Eagles' Hotel California. So I didn't realize it was that uh, popular. I mean, the, the song that perhaps is the most famous on the famous album is Paradise by the Dashboard Light. So continuing our sex theme as described by the Times, it's in a song that's almost eight and a half minutes long and includes a segment in which Phil Rizzuto, the Yankee broadcaster, narrates a sexual tug of war between Meatloaf's horny male character and a resistant female. I think that's a fair description. Yes. Uh, you don't hear uh, Phil Rizzuto on a lot of uh, 70s music. So, uh, that kind of jumped out at you. But, uh, you don't hear him in general
0: narrating sex scenes very often.
1: I don't, uh, no. Uh, so, uh, I don't know if there's a lot to be said about that, except it was a watershed album. It was a big deal. It was a big deal in our lives growing up. And it turns out it's a big deal a lot of people. Well, he had
0: other uh, he had, great yeah, well, songs.
1: Yes, he had no. You know, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Mm-hmm. Which was a, a big song and a huge seller. He, he wrote an opera. He he did a bunch of other things. But but the reason he's notable particularly to me, but I think the others also is that out of hell.
0: I think they met in college, Meatloaf and Steinman. You know? Uh
1: well, I don't know if they went to the same college. I know that uh what was it what did you told me that Steinman went to Amherst or went to- yeah. yeah. uh I think they met because they're both involved in Rocky uh, Horror Show in some weird way, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, okay. Simon contributed music, and uh, Meatloaf was in it. Meatloaf was his own. Yeah, their star.
0: lives kept intersecting. Yeah,
1: you know, um, he's kind of unique. Yeah, performer. it's
0: not like it was, uh, you know, uh, match made in heaven, at love at first sight. No, but, but uh, they, fate brought them together. Fate brought them. Okay, together. A, a quick museum thing. Just a quick. Museum thing because yeah. I know I'm going to overstay my welcome on other things, uh, and that is there's a there's an article I found a rather uh, disappointing article in the Wall Street Journal on uh, Saint Francis in the Desert oh. by Giovanni Bellini. Article written by William Wallace, and uh, I don't know it's just a description of the the picture. You know, it doesn't really explain much about it it started out very exciting because you know the frick right we've talked about this recently frick is which is in you know henry clay frick's old mansion on fifth avenue just off fifth avenue um is closed and all the frick art is now rather than being displayed as if you're in the home of you know a wealthy uh what do you call it not, wealthy, lo- um, wealthy person. <laughs> uh, what's the word for people from that period?
1: Uh, I don't know. What that all right, <laughs> all right, never mind.
0: Um, anyway, moving right along. So, there, all this art is over at the Whitney. Right, yeah. the old Whitney, yeah. and so which is being called Frick Madison, and uh, it's in very modern. It's in the Breuer, so it's in very modern Stark setting. Mm-hmm. And this supposedly, and I've I've seen pictures of the room. The Saint Francis comes off pretty dramatically uh, the way it's displayed, mm-hmm. and uh, it's great. Anyway, I'm just pointing this out because there's no point in reading this article in the Wall Street Journal. Goes directly to your computer, yeah. dial up cocktails with a curator, mm-hmm. and have uh, your friend of mine, Xavier Xavier Solomon, mm-hmm. uh tell you about it. He does an excellent discussion of uh the Saint Francis in the Desert by Giovanni Bellini. He's the you know the head curator, uh at the the chief curator I should say, at the Frick. And he's terrific. And he will also give you the recipe for a drink to have with it.
1: Okay. I know you listen to that show religiously. Every Friday at 5, you can be found with your own drink. Yeah,
0: but it, yes. But it's not just, uh, um, it's worth listening to. Okay. I'm not saying he it's will not. give. He will give you interesting uh, information and perspectives about the art. Okay. Me again? Yes. I got my hands full here. So this is kind of this is a funny but sad story, and that is that uh, there's somebody um, trying to steal people's literary prize money. So uh, it turns out more than one. Um, you know how they award uh, they give awards to writers. Mm-hmm. And it comes with some thousands of dollars or euros or something, mm. uh, as part of the prize. And somebody has been swooping in when these prizes are announced and, uh, sending an email saying, uh, claiming to be the winner of the prize mm. and, uh, says something like, uh, I'm so excited. This is a great honor. And, by the way, having a little bit of trouble with my checking account. Can you pay me through PayPal? Here's my information, and, and, uh, and they send them the money. Uh, sometimes they don't, but <laughs> at least one the um, uh, the Rathbones Folio Prize paid uh, thirty thousand mm-hmm. pounds to some scammer.
1: And so this, is, this uh, would be a good idea for the Oscars if they gave cash prizes, but unfortunately, they don't but uh so they're saying if you read if you read the email carefully they they all have the same
0: m.o. like the emails written in the middle that comes in the middle of the night yeah. and it always goes you know someone knows who to send it to all right. right um so they think it's kind of an inside uh, job although it's not the best grammar it's not especially well written um as a literary clinic, critic um one uh, winner said i would say there were all the right words but none of the fire so anyway watch out if you uh it seems an
1: odd thing to scam you, you know you think uh, there's a lot of people involved in that there's a lot of publicity it's not like it's being done in the dark in a secret it's not like unsophisticated people and yet if you're brazen enough you come out and you say hey thanks for the Booker Prize. Send the hundred thousand dollars. Well, here. I think that's
0: why you know sometimes it works. No one's expecting it.
1: Yeah. So. Well, oh yeah, I guess yeah. it does. It's in the paper. They so do t-
0: it. to some extent, it's um, kind of a smart scammer.
1: So here's something that you and I don't have to worry about, but I'm glad that the Times on top of it because some people do, and that is if you're an ex NBA basketball player, people challenge you to one-on-one. People say, "Hey." You don't look like you are such great shakes. You know, you put on 10 or 15 pounds since you played NBA basketball. You look a little over the hill. You're in your late 30s. You're in your 40s. You're in your mid 40s. And they get challenged all the time, these guys. The article focuses on a few different players. Brian Scalabrini, who I remember well, even in college, played 11 years in the pros. Uh, Mike Sweeney, uh, who's 38 now, but he played a million years ago for the Knicks at Foyle. Who played from 97 to 2009 and they have each of their stories they are similar they say you know we're a normal life now and every once in a while i'm in a gym or i'm near a gym and something like that and uh, some high school guys or some uh, young fellows who think they really can play basketball say let's play one-on-one and it's a little awkward and they say why is that because you can't keep up with them they said no because we destroy them <laughs> <laughs> They destroy them, which doesn't surprise me. It's more surprising to me than anybody would think they could compete with an NBA player. But apparently, uh, that's not generally known. So the Times is making it clear. Scalabrini puts it. He said, you want to understand if you're playing in the NBA, you're one of the 500 best basketball players in the world. Let's, let's People should understand that. But what's more interesting and more subtle, perhaps and Scalabrini points it out as this foil, though, is, is one of the key things about being a professional athlete, particularly in the NBA, is you have to have a real killer instinct. You have to have another, uh, another place you can go uh, to escalate your, your game and your competitiveness. It's not being a normal thing. I mean, you have to you're challenged all the time. You have to raise your game and raise your concentration level. And if people challenge you, that clicks in and you become a very different player because Foil calls it the stupid gene. Uh, Scalabrine refers to it as sort of a dark side. Something takes over. You cannot succeed in the NBA, particularly as a marginal player, unless you're ultra competitive, unless... When the chips are down, you can reach into that, what Calabrini calls a dark place. You need that to be an NBA player. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of dark people, but... Um, That's what they, they claim. No, they, but,
0: no, but I, I think the main point is... They're professionals.
1: Well, it's, but it's more you than know, that.
0: And you sit, no, there's a tendency, you, you know, you sit there, you watch the basketball on TV yeah. and you say, well, I can play basketball, right?" you know, and you, to some extent, you, you know, you <laughs> empathize with those guys. You see yourself
1: as those guys. Yes. Okay. But uh, it's a whole different level. Oh, there's no question. But the other, all three of these guys say, look, if someone challenges me, what I say to them is, you know something, I'm not going to be the same guy. We're gonna play competitively. I'm not gonna back off. We're not gonna screw around. I'm not right. gonna kid around. Right. And they beat him eleven nothing. And frankly, some of them stopped doing. It. Foyle says he stopped doing it not because he's afraid of hurting somebody else or beating them eleven nothing. He says I'm gonna hurt myself because <laughs> For my what because For what? my mind takes me to a place that my body can't back up. But you anymore. see my
0: point. Yeah. You know if you you know if a, a nuclear physicist comes to town, you don't challenge him. You right. say oh yeah. You know, he, he could be 105. He still knows more than I know. Right. But basketball, you figure, yeah. you know, basc- well, I could play so basketball. Long. For those yeah. of you thinking about challenging ex-NBA players, think twice. Okay, so you found a funny little article about uh, space food. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't think the, you know, the, the way the article starts out is not so amazing. A French uh, astronaut, uh, you know, uh Um, needs fancy food needs fancy food yeah Uh, of course they're not they're not drinking they don't really need fancy foods but uh, the people who are making the food say oh crap we have a frenchman in the right. um, uh, you know in space. space station and we have to we make, gotta French make French we got to make uh, beef lobster beef bourguignon yeah, beef yeah. Uh, yeah. Beef cod for... with black rice exactly. blah, blah, blah one caramelized does. pears well, what else do you eat in space and so they
1: hire their pears have to be
0: they hire alain Ducasse. alain Ducasse, as we
1: call uh, him yes uh,
0: has a consulting yeah. business that works with like uh, you know airline food yeah. and they so they might on. have too much money in this program right. so yeah. so they, they come up with some very cool stuff they come up with new ways to do it it's not all the just uh back in the day remember it was all ground to mush right and it comes out of a tube so uh they've found ways to do things one of the ones i thought was most interesting was um you know the the french use a fair amount of alcohol to add flavor to food. Oh yeah, okay? they, they but it it's prohibited yeah. to have they alcohol in uh, the spaceship. So uh, they have found a way to uh, extract the alcohol from a finished dish with a spinning evaporator right. without
1: moving. That's what they say. The, that the space program improves our life in so many ways.
0: So here's the here's the fun things I learned. Number one. Um, you know the freeze dried ice cream that you always see. You know I don't, don't. like the gift shops? I, I read it. Right. I, I right. never see it. No, if you go to like uh, you know a history Simi- or science the, the Smithsonian, they science, say the Smithsonian, yeah, yeah. A museum, yeah. in the gift shop, which I don't, it will got. be astronaut ice cream. Really, a little foil pack. Well, you know, and this, everybody yeah. buys it because it seems like such a cool thing. Wow, ice cream. It turns uh, out, it, it turns out. Um, it was. It never went to space. Never went to space. Astronauts. It was that developed. <laughs> it was developed for right. the um, agency's AIM Research Center gift shop in California. Right. Okay. So it was always a gift you shop. You got to be careful. Okay.
1: The gift shops. Yeah. Uh,
0: number two um, that I thought was interesting is they really are experimenting with having uh, astronauts grow vegetables. Oh God. Uh, um, have already astronauts have grown and eaten small harvests of lettuce and radishes wow. on the space uh, station yes. because with the idea that if you're going to mars yeah. you may really not be able to carry all it's, the food you need for a trip that that's long that's called farm to table <laughs> yes okay and uh space farm to table um and then i thought one other interesting thing and where is it uh, oh they did bake cookies. They baked chocolate chip really? cookies in space. Really? You know, so they're experimenting with how to do that. They didn't eat them. They had to bring them back to uh,
1: Earth for testing. They baked cookies that they didn't eat? Yes. They, that's because that's you story. don't know, you know? <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> you got to have them tested. Because you need it. When you return from space... Weird things could happen so to space, space cookies. You should have a gift that you give people. Like a bundt cake. You say, I'm back from space. Here, have some cookies. Well, that's pretty weird. Again, yeah,
0: so that's interesting. It's interesting. Maybe there's a future for. Uh, I do think. You know, there's all different ways to participate in the space program,
1: okay? Apparently.
0: It's not just for engineers or astronauts. I think the space program is
1: overfunded. Yeah. No, it's not at all. That's what I'm getting from it. So Chuck Geschke passed away. I, so who was that? So Chuck Geschke was the head of Adobe. We all know Adobe, and which is a big deal. Matter of fact, Chuck... Well, was, so he was the founder with another guy, right? Yeah, and he helped dev- develop... He invented the, Adobe. He invented something. PDFs. We helped. wouldn't
0: have PDFs without it. I was them. going
1: to call it the portable document format or PDFs. So, you just learned how to do a PDF recently, didn't you? It's like you? the ad you see on television. They say, you know, who, who next wants to try out of sending a PDF? And everybody backs away from no, the No, they computer. just
0: say, opening a PDF. Opening a PDF,
1: everybody backs <laughs> Oh, no, no, not me. Well, this guy. So here's the weird thing about him. Of course, there are all these people. All these things had to be developed by people. That's not a big surprise. But his backstory is a big surprise. And why is that? Because he goes to school. Uh, in uh, He goes to a Jesuit High School in Cleveland, and he joins a Jesuit seminary after graduation. And he's going to be a seminarian or a minister or something like that. He drops out before the end of his fourth year. And they decided that the priesthood was not for him. Okay. All right. So then he goes to Xavier University. Because he knows Latin. He figures he has a leg up. And he go, concentrates and graduates with a degree in classics. Okay. He's interested in classic. Then he stays for a master's degree in mathematics. And he begins working as a math professor at John Carroll University, a Catholic University in Cleveland. He's saying, "Great, I'm not getting to Adobe." Well, while he's a teacher at John Carroll, he has a student uh, who struggles, and uh, Geske sits down to him and advises that he leaves school. He says, "School's not for you." And the student comes back to see him a year later. He said, "Boy, were you ever right? The best thing you ever did was kick me out of school." The student had found a high-paying job selling. General Electric Computers, and he taught his former teacher, Geshki, how to write a computer program. Well, that somehow clicked. So he wrote a simple computer program, and he enrolled as a Ph.D. student in the new computer science department at Carnegie Mellon, and the story, as you can imagine, goes on from there. He receives his doctorate uh, in computer science, he joins Xerox. And then he helps develop the PDF and he's, as we say, off to the races. But talk about a winding well, road. Well, actually,
0: what I found was interesting. Yes, go ahead. Was he, he and someone else propose... Uh, the because concept the Xerox, the Xerox. to Xerox and, Xerox and they says, say well that, this will take us about 10 years to develop seven years, seven seven years. and they say and they say oh, forget that You know, we can I, do that quicker
1: right and, and they leave so and they quit start and they company. start Adobe yeah so, but you know just talk about a winding road I mean you know he's doing all kinds of different things and he looks like he, he, you know, computer science doesn't even exist when he starts in school and he takes that long and winding road and then he ends up being uh, it just shows you you know guy.
0: it's not It's not how you
1: start, it's how you finish.
0: Right. It's not a linear
1: progression. It is definitely not.
0: So, you know, I was talking about the Rosenwald schools, and I was saying it was, uh, you know, a a wonderful story and warms the heart and so on. In other ways, it doesn't warm the heart because uh, the circumstances for black education. Uh, were so terrible. Right. Um, And,
1: uh... Well, I don't know how that plays in this other story, because this is just so weird. Well, this is an interesting... uh, This is the obituary of a fellow named... What's his first name? Alan? Alan
0: Schoener. Yeah,
1: Alan. A-L-L-O-N. Schoener. Whatever. Um,
0: Curator, whose Harlem exhibit drew outrage, dies at 95. This is in the New York Times. So, um... This was a curator who put together an exhibition for the Metropolitan Museum, called Harlem on My Mind, uh, in uh, nineteen sixty nine, I think, mm-hmm. um, and he was he, he was a. Um, well he was highly qualified. Done he was highly qualified. He had he, he had was, been to Yale. Right. He had been to the Institute of Art in London. Oh. He had uh, been a curator he was a uh, for property. the San Francisco yeah, Museum he still, he of Art. He was on his way up. He had done he had an interesting concept yeah. about exhibitions. Yeah. He had done a show for the um, Jewish Museum called the Lower East Side portal to American life that drew lines down the block, told the story of Eastern European Mm -hmm. immigrants, okay? He'd also done a show uh, uh, celebrating uh, the 150th anniversary of the Erie Canal. Okay, so he's not a fine arts focus, okay? He's a cultural art history focus, okay? What does... You know, Art, what does uh, tell us about the culture of the time? Right, in this case, you know, Harlem. At uh, this aren't time, yeah. uh, Harlem. Uh, his idea was to document Harlem's history through large-scale photographs, newspaper articles, film reels, and jazz recordings. I hate museums when they are remote from life. He told the New York Magazine at the time, "This show will grab people an electronic theater." Right. Okay, so. Uh, The um, director at the Met at that time was uh, the famous Thomas Hoving. It opens uh, with blockbuster billing, and uh, there's just tremendous uh, outcry.
1: Well, there's different, from a lot of different yeah, directions, yeah, different different kind of complaints. They weren't all the same complaint. No, some people thought you shouldn't focus on Harlem, and some people thought that they didn't he didn't give due to African American artists, and some people thought they were politicizing art, right? Okay, uh, as well. But the strangest criticism was the ones who said they didn't do much for African American artists, right? Well, there and was, a, was the there was a
0: demonstration, okay, right. um, actually uh, by a group called the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, right? Um, Decrying the lack of any art in the exhibition, any right. paintings or sculpture uh, in the exhibition right. by and black artists, and Metropolitan backed down, hoping apologize. Right. They, well, they pulled the. Lindsay Mayor Lindsay threatened to take away their right. funding. Right. right. Okay. And they and killed. This and they folded. Right. And they killed this guy's career. It, they did, and also uh, there was also a catalog. Yeah. Okay. No, it said and they pulled the catalog. The catalog also had problems. Right. It had an essay by a young person that actually used anti-Semitic right, language. Right. Right. But that, uh, and, and that he, may they have been apologized just, for. Yes. Yeah, he apologized mistake. for right. that. But as,
1: as so you were also, about to say, but it, ruins his life. So he ends up like going to Vermont and hanging out in a small. You know, he's homeschooling his kids. He's you know he's he's on the periphery for the rest of his life and his career. Right. Yeah. And the killer I mean, of d- all this. Is. Yes is
0: that uh, fairly recently um, they um, republished the catalog itself Harlem on my Mind all right and um, it uh, you know brought it back into the mainstream yes. to people's attention and people are like are looking at it and saying this is actually very well, good yes
1: but but the killer of it is this that, that the whole thing was dumb. Because he, he was criticized for not having uh, African-American artists, African-American painting or African-American sculpture uh, in the exhibit. But there were no paintings in the exhibit. There right. were no sculptures it was, in the exhibit. It, it was photography. Wasn't a, yeah. Right. It wasn't a painting or sculpture exhibit. Right. So the whole thing was kind of nuts. It became over-politicized.
0: And and the show yeah. did celebrate Black photographers, Right. Gordon Parks, right. responsible
1: for discovery, right. James Van Der Zee. Uh, so, um, so then you point out that Henry Louis Gates, years later, celebrates that so this is one of the greatest...
0: Remains, uh, even a quarter century later, one of the richest and most comprehensive records of the history
1: of the African American in the 20th century. Right. So this guy was sidelined for some kind of odd political reasons. It's kind of sad. Um, so
0: it just... Uh, Many times, uh, we need to take uh, a real look yeah, and well, just not a knee-jerk reaction. Well,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of a sad story. And it, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, somebody dropped the ball. I mean, obviously, Hoving should have stood up for him a little bit more. And the Met should have stood up for a little bit more, but no one apparently could, uh, you know, get people to settle down. I mean, there's no question. You probably could have addressed, uh,
0: maybe it was a real concern uh, to think about, uh, are we seeing many paintings? Right. By Black Americans right. Except there wasn't a in the Met. Exhibit. Yeah. No, no, no. More as a general concept. Yeah, yeah. Okay, not, this exhibition, you know, hadn't meant that. to do that. So right. that's still a lack. But let's
1: address that lack. Yeah, it's kind of a sad story. So, just finally, this, this is a, this is just one of those things. This is how we learn, and how baseball takes us to a higher level of consciousness. Um, 22 years ago, 22 years from Friday to be exact, uh, there was an amazing thing that happened in baseball. A baseball player named Fernando Tatis hit two Grand Slam home runs. So you're saying, you're going to say to me in the same game? I'm going to say, not only in the same game, Tamsin, but in the same inning. No, that's not possible. Not only in the same inning, Tamsin, but in the same inning off the same pitcher which makes even less sense. So how can you leave this pitcher in the game long enough to give up two Grand Slam homers to the same guy? He had to face 10 guys and give up like 12 runs. It doesn't make any sense. The pitcher was Chan Ho Park, the first Korean pitcher. So it's always been a day that people just kind of do double takes about. Fernando Tatis, 22 years ago. So what happens 22 years to the day after that happens? That happened, by the way, in the Los Angeles home ballpark which was against the Dodgers. So the, the Padres are playing the Dodgers in that same ballpark 22 years later to the day. And who's on the Padres but their newly signed star named Fernando Tatis Jr., <laughs> who is the son of Fernando Tatis. And what okay, does he do? And he hits two home runs. And uh, You're kidding. No.
0: How is that even possible?
1: It's uh, Did people, they just let him do it? No, they don't let him. And it, Did fact, they move the pitcher and back? they were both against the same pitcher and no lesser pitcher than Clayton Kershaw. And wow. uh, it, and so, yeah, wow well, sums it up. And here's the great quote from the Padres' manager. Quote, it's crazy to think about on, I guess, what you'd call the anniversary. I don't know how to explain it. Just more reassurance that there is a higher being. End on that quote. note. So there you go. For all of you who are wondering about there being a higher being... Now we we had that question answered last Friday in Los Angeles by Fernando Tati. So uh, until next week. This is Tamson Granger.
0: And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. See you then.